there, everyone. Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. We've got a good episode for you today with an interview with National Soccer Hall of Famer Marcelo Balboa that you'll want to hear. Before that, I'll be speaking to Taylor Rockwell of the Total Soccer Show for 10 minutes about the soccer weekend. But we're a community here on this podcast. And for now, I want to start with a segment on what we're experiencing right now. I took heart from Weston McKenney and Marcus Turam this weekend. There are so many other names I could mention, but McKenney and Turam are part of our soccer community. In the midst of the global protests over the police murder of a black man, George Floyd, in Minneapolis, these two soccer players made sure they were heard. McKenney, an American, wore a Justice for George armband during Schalke's game against Werder Bremen. And Turam, the son of the French World Cup winner Lillian Turam, took a knee after scoring for Gladbach to honor an American man thousands of miles away. The fight against generations of systematic racism in America and abroad knows no borders, and it made me think back to a night a few years ago when Lillian Turam joined me for a public discussion about racism in soccer at New York University. Lillian Turam has devoted his post-playing career to campaigning against racism in sports, and he spent that night explaining a lot of things. Stories about the racism he experienced in his career in Italy and Spain and France. Actions that everyone can take in their daily lives to combat the tacit acceptance of racism. And if there was one point that Turan made that night that stood out more than any other, it was that the onus isn't on the victims of racism to bear the burden of fighting racism. It's on white people. When Romelu Lukaku is abused by racist fans in Italy, it's not on him to fight it. It's on his white teammates to speak up. It's on the white fans in the stadium to take a stand and do something. It's on the nearly all-white authorities in Italian soccer to go scorched earth in punishing clubs whose fans produce racism. The same applies to all of us white people everywhere, in every social situation. It's not enough to stand by and do nothing. Weston McKenney and Marcus Turam did something this weekend. They deserve more than our respect. They deserve our action, too. Now let's bring in Taylor Rockwell, my friend from the Total Soccer Show. Taylor, how are you doing? Uh, you know, all things considered, I, I, I think I am well, though it's definitely strange times for sure. I'm sure you've experienced that being in New York, and it was strange times down here in Richmond this weekend for sure. Yeah, it's it's hard to focus entirely on soccer, and we shouldn't be focusing entirely on soccer right now. There's a lot going on uh, in every city in America and outside America in a lot mm -hmm. of ways uh, these days. I don't know if you can hear it right now. I'm in uh, Manhattan, and there are helicopters above where we are, uh, and ha that's been the case for the last 24, 36 hours. And so um, New York City has been an interesting place over the last I don't know, two or three months now, like yeah. there's sirens for COVID uh, all day long. And, and now there's sirens still for COVID, but also for all the things that are happening. Um, and, uh, you know, I talked about in my opinion piece, um, what Weston McKenney and Jaden Sancho and uh, Marcus Turam did. There was also you know, Killian Mbappe, I think, put out a tweet uh, honoring George Floyd during mm -hmm. Uh, this weekend's games here. And, um, you know, I, I got to admit, like seeing McKenney put uh, uh, an armband on saying justice for George, uh, Weston McKenney's a young guy. Uh, he's, he's just 21 years old. And I, I think he's 
sort of finding his way uh, as a public figure and a prominent player on the U.S. men's national team. And I want to give him some credit for what he did. Yeah, I think I think especially for in an era like when we talk about soccer, we talk about people who are incredibly aware of their branding and aware of the kind of ramifications of their actions. I think that's a thing that a lot of young players are taught and coached and educated upon. And I think that a young player would make that decision to kind of publicly show solidarity and, and bring even more attention to to the issue. I think, yeah, it, it's a very strong stance, but it's the type of stance that I feel like I kind of expect from Weston McKinney because he seems like a pretty strong person person and a strong leader for the national team at least that's what I've seen from him sort of being like the uh the chemistry the good the good glue when I've seen him in camp so I I I expect nothing less but it was still uh, a very strong moment and I think the same for Sancho and Thuram as well and I think shows the kind of resonance that uh the situation has that it's not just in the United States but around the world I think people are sort of aware of the device divisiveness of our times and the uh the kind of overwhelming nature of our times. Yeah. And and I will say this, because I said on Twitter, it would be great if uh, more white players, teammates uh, gave their support in in different ways. Uh, you don't have to do it by wearing a t-shirt. You can say something in an interview or you can just do something I, I think publicly would be uh, a great gesture of support uh, just because I think it's important for everyone. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I know, to, what, you, I know what you mean. To it's got to be a tough line to walk, though, because simply because not like because they don't have the same thing at risk, but more so like for me personally, like I'm I am. I know, Grant, this might be a surprise. I'm, I'm a white guy. Uh, I would and maybe even a basic white guy. Uh, and, and I think like especially like this weekend, for example, I kind of don't know what uh, is my role? What is my place? Like, what it, should I be, you know, out there wearing a bit like a big shirt? Or am I like co-opting that and making it my own thing? If I if some of his teammates were wearing the shirts as well, like, does that take away from the message? If they just kind of stood there and pointed, would that be the solidarity you want? I can see how there are those, it swings the other way of, I want to be involved, I want to kind of vocalize my frustration and sadness and hurt with the situation. But I also don't want to make it about me and take anything away from anybody else who's maybe feeling it a bit more. And so there is that, again, that line to walk. But but I know what you mean. It would, it would be good to see more people sort of expressing their opinions and, if nothing else, kind of motivating people to know that it's okay to have opinions that might be divisive if it means that we're kind of having further discourse and further conversations. Yeah. And I hope those conversations take place uh, more and more, uh, yeah. especially in the white community. You know, I... Marcus Turam's dad, Lillian Turam, did a, a big thing at NYU a few years ago with me on racism in soccer, and it was one of the the most enlightening nights of of my career. Just to to listen to what he had to say about his experiences and uh, and his great hope that uh, that the white community uh, and white athletes did more, and that after these racist incidents we've seen in various places, including Italy this season and, and elsewhere, that the media would ask, not go to the black players after the game, that they would go to the white players and ask what they thought about the racist chants mm -hmm. in the stands. And, and I do think about, um, you know, uh, the 1968 Olympics uh, and the black power salute. And I don't know if people remember that image, but there was a, a white Australian guy on that medals podium as well, who, who did right. support them mm -hmm. and had some some visuals and, and worked with those guys to show that he he was in their corner. And so I, I, I know it's tough sometimes to know exactly yeah. what to do, but I think there's there's good things that can be done and, and action is important. 
Absolutely. I think I think I'm correct in saying I think I remember that story as well. And I think he was like, yeah, very encouraged. He encouraged them. I forget the guy who the guy was and what his name was. Or even what country, like maybe Norway, I think that might just be because he was very pale. Uh, but I remember like the story being that he had even been like offered the opportunity to do it himself. And he was like, no, that will distract. That will take away from you all. Like mm-hmm. I am not trying to like like ingratiate myself by like also making myself a part of it when I am clearly a person who can support it. But it's not about me. And I feel like that was it. It tends to get like uh, lost in the history, but in the kind of iconic nature of that photo. But yeah, I think everybody can play a part and play a role, and it doesn't just have to be, I don't know, screaming on social media. Yeah. Um, we mentioned Weston McKinney. We'll talk more about him in a second. Uh, on the field, things not going great at Schalke right now. Not so much. Uh, but, but I want to talk about Jesse Marsh first briefly because yeah. uh, he did something on Friday that uh, – is almost unprecedented, and that is an American-born, American-raised coach uh, winning a European trophy. The Austrian Cup champions are Salzburg, uh, Jesse Marsh in his first year there. Obviously an amazing season when you look at him and his team playing in Champions League, uh, losing 4-3 to three, uh, at Liverpool in one of the games of the season. And Jesse Marsh lost Erling Holland in January mm-hmm. and Takumi uh, Minamino in January to Liverpool. And things sort of started to take a dip and they weren't in first place when COVID hit. And now weirdly they're back in first <laughs> yep. place in the league because the team that was in first place did this crazy like violation of the rules during social distancing by having too many players training together and got yep. caught by video. Um and so they got deducted points. Uh, Salzburg is back in first in the league, and now they're the Austrian Cup champion. I don't know if you saw the uh, social distance trophy celebration where they had circles, on the, white circles that everyone stood in. Um, it was pretty impressive. It was, well, it was well choreographed. I did notice that. I thought it was <laughs> impressive that even in the celebrations, they kept they kept the the social distancing in place because it does feel like it slacked off a little bit. I feel like I've seen more hugs and more high fives in the celebrations. You can still see the players in the Bundesliga sort of pulling away really quickly, like, "Oh, right, we're not supposed to do that." And so I feel like in this a very high profile moment. I like that the Austrian Bundesliga really focused on sort of keeping everybody apart to celebrate the uh, the Austrian Cup. <laughs> One of the biggest trophies I've ever seen, by the way. The, the <laughs> only trophy I can think of that was bigger was the old Gold Cup trophy, which like, you, the U.S. won it in 2005. was, I think, like taller than Jimmy Conrad. We had a question the other day on Total Soccer Show uh, on the Saturday show about like what are some of the, like our favorite trophies. And if you start Googling different league trophies to figure out which ones are the best, you do kind of forget how hilariously large they are and how like there's one of Xavi li- lifting the old Copa del Rey, I think, and it looks yeah. like twice his size. It, they can be a little <laughs> bit ostentatious for sure. At this one, the Austrian Cup looked like a tuba. Like passed <laughs> off, like it from the Misfit Tuba Company, but. Uh, Jesse Marsh, here's my question for you. Do mm-hmm. you think Jesse Marsh might really start to move up the chain in Europe? Like, I've gotten the sense, and part of this is because his team did pretty well in the Champions League group stage, gave Liverpool a go. Uh, and then part of it was that viral video where Jesse was mm-hmm. half in German and half in English at Liverpool that just, like... I just find it interesting that he hasn't gotten the usual, oh, you're an American response from European soccer fans. 
I think to some extent it's probably the way he went about it that like there's there are all the stories of him sort of traveling the world with his family right he seems like he's a man of the world he likes different cultures uh di- you know di- different uh, societies he can exist in but it also feels to me like he's a guy who went over there and and sort of for lack of a better better way of putting it like did it the right way that he goes over there he's an assistant he he t- makes that step down from being a head coach in in the United States to go be an assistant with uh, RB Leipzig and that gets him then that position with Salzburg and it is a little bit of a factory. We know Marco Rosa goes from uh, Salzburg to uh, managing Gladbach. And, and and it does seem like there is sort of a blueprint there of you get this experience as an assistant, you get this experience as a head coach, playing this aggressive style with lots of different like permutations and variations. But fundamentally, there's a lot of kind of basic building blocks that are the same that I think will appeal to a lot of teams around Europe. So I, I do think he probably get, starts getting some offers probably in the Bundesliga, maybe elsewhere. But I think he probably, because of the way he went about doing it, maybe he doesn't have that sort of stigma of like, oh, that American guy who just came over and now has a job. I don't know about that one. It seems like he kind of worked his way into it a bit. I'm just really impressed. I guess my biggest question Mm -hmm. is, would Jesse prefer to wait for Nagelsmann to leave Leipzig for Real Madrid or whatever and want that job and wait for it because it's in the system? He's been at Leipzig everyone knows him at Red Bull or let's say at the end of this season, if some decent Bundesliga team comes calling, might he leave Papa Red Bull for the first time in many years? I, I, I think there's a chance that maybe if he got that Leipzig offer for whatever reason, I, I'm guessing he would take it because, you know, they're a pretty good team right now. But to your point, like, yeah, he's been in the Red Bull system. There might be that like that desire to show that it's not just about that I'm the company guy, the system guy, I can do it myself. And so maybe we will see him make that jump. And and I hope we do, because I think if he keeps moving up, obviously it opens doors for everybody else. But it's impressive that with losing those two players, he's able to sort of maintain the status quo and win the the cup again. It's not a rare sight for them to win silverware, uh, RB Salzburg, but to lose your two players and kind of keep it going. If nothing else, I I would say that registers as some success. And I think people will probably start taking... uh, uh, more note of Jesse Marsh, at least I hope so. In terms of uh, actual games this weekend outside of Austria, uh, Germany was playing again. I mean, this title race was over the second, I, f- I feel like, Bayern beat Dortmund last week. Bayern 5, Fortuna Dusseldorf nil. Uh, this week, Bayern 7 points up with 5 games to go. Alfonso Davies remains very good. Robert Lewandowski yes. remains very good. I don't think there's a heck of a lot to talk about here. And, and It's I, the frustrating I also thing because- with Bayern, yeah. Yeah, and and also because now that we know that all these other leagues are coming, I think, I hate to say it, but I think with Germany's title race settled, it's going to be not quite as much attention on on Germany. But there are Americans in Germany, and for our purposes, uh, we had Josh Josh Sargent uh, playing against Weston McKinney, uh, uh, Werder Bremen against Schalke this weekend. And I'd like to talk a little bit about both guys because... Werder Bremen ends up winning 1-0 at Schalke. Schalke has been a complete disaster since the game started again. I, you know, when, when everything started again, they were in a Europa qualifying slot, and they're not yeah. close to that now. And um, in, before we get to McKenney, Sargent didn't score in this game, but I didn't feel like he was bad. No, if anything, I felt like this is maybe the best performance we've seen from Josh Sargent, at least since the Bundesliga uh, resumed play. That Mm -hmm. we, number one, we didn't have him being publicly criticized by his manager, so that's progress. (laughs) Uh, But we also didn't have him, like, 
like it, it being audible that he was being screamed at. We've had that since the Bundesliga resumed. <laughs> so that he didn't get that already shows that maybe there's progress. But then I think a lot of his movement and off the ball work. No, he doesn't score, but uh, Werder Bremen win one nil. I think the coach will be okay with that. But that he is, I think, starting to be better in understanding the system and where to be and when and how he needs to make runs and how he needs to drop back. It seems like he's getting a bit more familiarity with the system and is therefore getting a bit more fluid within it. So hopefully the goals come. But I was heartened by uh, Josh Sargent, maybe less so by Weston McKinney, though more that has more to do with Schalke, I think, than Weston. Yeah, I mean, I just get the sense David Wagner might get the axe here before too long. And it's crazy because, you know, they were in eighth place before the virus and got off to a pretty good start this year, so much better than their league situation last year. I had actually visited Schalke right before Tedesco got fired a year ago. We were doing an interview with Weston McKenney, and we went to the training session the day after another home loss. And in Germany, they allowed the home fans to come for free to training sessions, and everyone came and basically just glared at the players and, and the coach for like <laughs> That's a fun two hours. Yeah, yeah it was, we were just like, oh boy, this is uh, something. And my guess is that if there weren't social distancing right now, that that kind of a situation would be happening with the Schalke fans at training with David Wagner. Um, in, in McKenney, where does he fit into this? I mean, he's certainly getting a lot of playing time, and that, you know, isn't a bad thing, but it just seems like everything is going wrong for this team right now. And maybe he's trying to do too much. Yeah. I I think you're seeing when you watch Schalke play a lot of variation, in my opinion, I think they, they fundamentally fundamentally do a lot of the kind of same things from game to game, but you see different formations and you certainly see Weston McKinney played in a variety of different positions. And to me, that says that that's great that David Wagner sees him as this very versatile player who can do a number of different things. And yeah, it's great he's getting minutes. But simultaneously, like if you think about Leipzig or you think about Salzburg, like there are identifiable patterns that you know are going to have to happen. There are identifiable features of their game that you then have to be very fit, uh, very good at pressing, very good on the ball and in possession. And so like if you go into that team, you sort of know what's expected of you and you're going to hone those skills. Whereas I think if you're Weston McKinney at Schalke, sort of like, okay, I'm playing where now? And okay, you want me to pass the ball quickly? Oh, this week I'm passing the ball slowly. Like it, it, cha- it seems to change from, from game to game at this point. And while he seems to be doing the best he can with it, it simultaneously has to be frustrating to not be able to sort of develop those same skills, that same awareness from game to game. Yeah. And I had Weston McKenney on my podcast uh, about six to eight weeks ago. And, and he said he'd had a good relationship with Tedesco who got fired in that he thought he had developed a good relationship with David Wagner. He did say it was odd that they communicated in German together since Wagner played for the U.S. and Weston plays for the U.S. <laughs> yeah. But, but that, that he thought they had a good connection. But, like, um, clearly uh, things just don't seem to be coherent right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I certainly could see, you know, Wagner being in a position where he's looking for, for work elsewhere. Maybe an MLS team should hire him. Yeah, maybe. Maybe I am fascinated by how American he is, uh, David Wagner, who's you know played like nine times for the U.S. national team. But I'm, I'm not sure if he uh, he how, how proudly he does that. I have a friend who's a Huddersfield fan, and whenever Huddersfield would lose, he said that was the David Wagner uh, coach. And then when they would win, it was the German side of him that won. So that that was that was a fun thing. It does seem a little bit like he's like. 
he like got hired by some like dysfunctional company and his like first day he was like well we should have office hours like we should work from nine to five and they're like, we never thought of that that's this brilliant idea like I feel like almost David Wagner put a tiny bit of structure on this completely underperforming thing and so even mo- moving it up a little bit suddenly it looked like oh, okay there's some semblance of normalcy here where in, in reality it seems like Shaka I think having some trouble uh, like in the front office and in some of the decisions they're making and I think that probably uh, has ramifications on the field but yeah let's get David Wagner in MLS let's get him to I don't know. I don't know where he needs to be to sort of uh, turn some heads and get some headlines, but I wouldn't mind that. Let's make that happen. Yeah. Um, let's talk about England. Uh, All right. I, I am excited about the phrase quadruple headers every Saturday and Sunday starting <laughs> June 20th. Should I, uh, should I, I be actually scared of that? <laughs> Uh-huh. Uh, well, you, you maybe not. I, I definitely am because I have to, I do the weekend review uh, on Total Soccer Show and that means I've got a lot of games I'm going to have to start paying attention to again. Uh, it does feel like a threatening gauntlet of soccer on its return, doesn't it? it it's, it's, it's too much. I'll be honest with you. I love soccer. <laughs> I will not, I'll say this right now. I will not watch every game in, in the quadruple header on Saturday and Sunday, especially if it's like some mid to lower table clash. <laughs> But you gotta give you gotta give them some credit over in England. They are trying to milk this for everything over there, and so basically, it sounds like there there won't be simultaneous games. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think they're trying to s- stagger it in, in such a way that then like the TV broadcasters get as many games as they can. They can sort of hype <laughs> them, promote them. Everybody feels like they're being involved, and maybe then they don't have to pay back a bunch of money uh, down the road. I think that's definitely sort of what they have an eye towards through the Premier League teams. I mean, I I will. Be excited if Liverpool, I'm a neutral, but like mm-hmm. everyone's sort of waiting for the coronation of Liverpool and they, they deserve to win the title. Um, yeah. You know, they're, it's not a close race, but I also know how my Liverpool fan friends were kind of freaking out about just even the remote possibility that they might void the season or something. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's going to happen. It's going to happen fairly soon here. And, uh, and looking forward to that first title in 30 years for Liverpool. Um, other leagues coming back, Spain and Italy announcing they're going to be coming back in mid-June. Uh, Spain a little bit earlier than Italy. Uh, the NWSL uh, has this mm-hmm. Utah tournament starting in late June uh, with all their teams. And MLS isn't official yet, but sounds like early July is when we're going to see this Orlando tournament. Um, I guess my question just We've seen Germany do a good job here so far in terms of being safe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we haven't seen a bunch of positive tests. We haven't seen any Bundesliga teams have to skip a week because they have too many tests and have positives and have to quarantine everybody. Do you think that other countries will pull off what Germany has pulled off as safely as Germany has done this? I mean, I think there's no reason why they wouldn't. And I think there's no reason why they shouldn't. Uh, if for no other reason, then because the Bundesliga has already sort of shown the way. And I, and I don't think mm-hmm. they're going to be particularly stingy in sharing their plans for how they went about operating. I mean, the, the guidelines are out there. You could just take them. They're already in English. Just like cross out the Bundesliga <laughs> and put the Premier League logo on them. You're good to go. Uh, and, and so I think you kind of have the protocols that have been proven to work. And so I think if 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 the different leagues follow that, and I think the different leagues take it as seriously as they seem to be, and I think they kind of have to because they they cannot afford no league even the Premier League I think can afford like reopening like restarting and then having to shut it down two weeks later because everybody has coronavirus that is a look that could be completely disastrous for the Premier League uh, even with its size and span and so I think 
just from a we want to continue to exist standpoint, I don't see how they can sort of take it lightly, slack off on their responsibilities. But that could also be wishful thinking. I just have fingers crossed on this one because I feel like Germany has handled as a country the coronavirus better than others. Uh, Obviously, I'm including the U.S. in that. I'm also including England in that. And so I hope the leagues have their stuff together uh, and and we'll see. Um, You know, it sounds like the testing regimen has already started with the Premier League. And so, uh, yeah, fingers crossed on that. I want to thank you, Taylor Rockwell, for joining me again this week. Anyone who's listening to this who doesn't listen to the Total Soccer Show with Taylor and Daryl, what are you thinking, how dare you? for one? First of all, how dare yeah. you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but if you happen to be one of those people, please check out the show. I, I agree. I, I would say that. And I think also, uh, since you plugged us, I'll say and be sure to uh, rev- rate, review, and subscribe uh, Grant Wall's podcast. I did that. I think earlier today, uh, because I heard uh, Daryl on the show from last week, and he was mentioning that he had already done it. So I did drop my review down because you had Daryl on, but I did review it. So at least there's that. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing that. So uh, (laughs) let's do this again very soon. Really appreciate it. Now my interview with Marcelo Balboa. Our guest today is one of the great defenders in U.S. soccer history. Marcelo Balboa is a National Soccer Hall of Famer who played in three World Cups, was an important part of the start of MLS, now works in broadcasting for Altitude in Colorado with the Rapids, and he coaches in the Colorado Rapids Development Academy's 14-year-old team where he's the head coach. He's also the assistant to the 19s. Marcelo, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, buddy. It's been a while. Long time, like never. (laughs) It it has been a while, you know, And, and... and you and I have been running into each other uh, oof, going back to the 90s uh, yeah. from when you were playing and then when you joined yep. the media ranks. First off, how are you and your family doing during this whole stretch of the virus? Well, first, thanks for asking. Um, everybody's good. You know, I've been pretty blessed. Mom and dad are in California. They're locked up. They're doing great, which is nice. Uh, my kids had to, to leave CU. They go to the University of Colorado right up the road at the Buffaloes, and uh, they came home. So they finished the last month, month and a half of school online. Now they're at home, relaxed. So you know what? It's just uh, been blessed, fortunate in my family. As everybody's been pretty healthy so far. And uh, the important thing was mom and dad. I was a little worried because of how it broke out, how quickly it broke out in California. But mom quickly ran to the store, grabbed all the stuff, and locked themselves in the house. So very blessed right now that, uh, that everybody's healthy. Good. Good to hear that. Um... From following your Instagram, you've been on your bike a lot. Uh, <laughs> what are you doing out there in Colorado on your bike? Here was the deal. I needed routine. For athletes, as a routine. You wake up, you go, and you go to practice. You have this routine. And the first few days, I was just kind of stumbling around trying to figure out what to do. So in March, I started walking. I started just like three, four miles. And then all of a sudden... It was just one of those things. I'm like, okay, March is fine. April's different. So I'm like, April, I'm like, I've got to, I've got to get out there. So I started walking every morning at six o'clock to go see the sunrise or to get on my bike and go 20 miles. And just it, it, the heart, mind, and soul, brother. It, if you keep it, if you keep it healthy, then you're going to be healthy. And that's what it does for me. It gets me out on the open road. Um, it gets me here in the birds. I've run into... Uh, bow snakes. I've run into rattlesnakes. I've run into coyotes, to foxes, to cows, to bulls. And uh, it's just cool to be out with nature right now. And it just, like I said, it just keeps the mind 
at peace. You know what I mean? It's a little bit of a spiritual kind of, especially when you're up in the mountains hiking, it's so quiet and it's just so relaxing that uh, I decided last month I hit like 200 something miles and I was, I was 287 and I got pissed off because I figured out I, I should have been at three. So this month, my goal was been to either to bike and to walk equally the amount so I could reach, I was challenged to reach 317. So I'll, I'll figure out my mileage today and, and see where I'm at. Which is right, because we're on recording this on May 29th. Yeah. So the month is, is almost up. So do, are yeah. you out? So you're not right in the city in Denver? Do you have access no, to, no, no, no. to the mountains? When I decided to move to Colorado, I decided that this was going to be a family choice. This was going to be a lifestyle choice. So all the players moved down south towards the tech center to downtown Denver. I pulled myself away a little bit and moved towards the Westminster, towards the Boulder area. So we finally found a house up in Boulder that if literally big pond in my backyard, 100 yards to my left, I have a hiking trail, a biking trail, 50 yards that way. There's a there's a cement trail that leads me to a different trail. So I've got like four or five different trails that I can go to. So it's it's definitely I'm not a city guy. I'm, I'm more of a, and people think you must be a surfer beach guy. I'm a mountain guy. I didn't realize how much I, I love it. And, uh, and it's just very peaceful. So I, I moved myself, removed myself a little bit away from everybody so I can have a little bit of privacy. Nice. Um, yeah. I want to ask you about a, a story from the start of MLS back in 1996, yes. because a couple years ago, we did an oral history on the first season of MLS, and there was all yep. sorts of wacky stuff happening at the time. And one of those wacky stories was that we were told Phil Anschutz said he would put in the money to own the team in Denver, but only if he could get that guy who nearly scored on the bicycle kick at yeah. the 94 World Cup, meaning you. Yeah. And Ivan Gazidis, the former MLS deputy commissioner, told us that he could only wonder what would have happened had you known, Marcelo, that you had that kind of leverage. When did you become aware <laughs> of that story? One I would have never used that as leverage because, <laughs> well, and only because, you know why? It's because we all had this dream and you were part of it. You know this, that we all wanted to start a league in the United States. We all wanted a league that was our own. We wanted a professional league in the United States. So there's no, even if I would have scored, I wouldn't have used it. Well, maybe I would have used it a little bit, maybe to get a Harley <laughs> or something. But you know what I mean? But it wasn't, it wasn't about that. It was about, I was in Mexico, okay, playing for Leon. And Sunil Galati decides to come to Leon to watch me play and to talk to me. And I'm like, great. I kind of figured something was up. So we're done. We go to the hotel. We're chatting. And Sunil's talking to me about coming back. And I'm sitting there going, yeah, you know, I do. But I was at a point in Leon where I was, I was, I was loving what, I was, what was going on in Leon. There was rumors of me possibly being sold to Cruz Azul and possibly me staying in Leon, which was my dream was to stay in Leon because I loved it there. And Sunil's like, well, you know, we have, I have somebody that wants to talk to you on the phone. And I'm like, okay. And I'm like, who is it? Phil Anschutz. Listen, <clears throat> we don't have smartphones back then. We didn't have, we had dial-up still, I think. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, who's Phil Anschutz at the time? And I'm embarrassed to say at the time, now, I, you know, when, when, you, when you finally meet him, you understand who he was. So Sunil puts him on the phone and they start talking and we're chatting and finally, Sunil says to him, hey, Phil, can you tell Marcelo what you told us? 
And that's where Phil says, talks about the league and talks about having a team in Denver. And the only way he's going to start a team in Denver is if that guy who did that funny overhead kick plays for me for Denver. So at that point, you know, my mind wasn't made up. I'll, I'll be honest with you. At that point, it wasn't made up that I was going to either play in MLS or stay in Mexico. But when an owner calls you and tells you this and 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 you just felt the the passion he had for the sport and how he wanted to see that dream come true too uh it made my decision a lot easier to leave leon and to play for the colorado rapids because of the fact that you can see how much he believed in soccer and when you've been a guy who's played in the amateur leagues who's played for the nomads he's played for the colorado foxes he played for the san francisco bay blackhawks with eric winald and david van Oli. you wanted to see it taken to the next level and you can feel that when when phil anchage talked to you and that made it real easy for me to to switch over and come and play for my team on this side colorado rapids Nice. Well, Phil Anschutz, for listeners who don't know, uh, his name is on the MLS Championship trophy. He basically yeah. saved the league. Uh, at yeah. one point, owned six teams in the league. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, yeah, just a huge figure in the history of, of soccer tell you, in America. And I'll tell you what, Grant, the other part was, is in, I didn't play the very first game in sporting. It's Kansas City at the, at the time, Kansas City Wizards. Um, I knew I made the right decision when I walked into the locker room for the very first game at home. And when Phil Anschutz walks in and he didn't have to say, hey, I'm Phil Anschutz, who are you? He knew everybody. Grant, he knew, I mean, he went, he had, hey, Marcel, how are you? How's your wife? I was like, fine, how are you? He went to everybody. He knew their families. He knew everybody's name. It wasn't... And how many owners do you know that they will walk into a locker room and can tell you 26, 20, whatever we had at the time, 22 players' names without having to introduce themselves? It was, it, you know, when I hit that point, I'm like, yeah, I made the right decision. This owner, this guy was, this guy was here and he was ready. And, and, and you can just tell that he wanted this to succeed. So that bicycle kick attempt in the 94 World Cup, I want to read something from Sports Illustrated. And this was the week that your U.S. team beat Columbia in the Rose Bowl and okay. Ernie Stewart was on the cover. Yep. But the very start of the story written by Alexander Wolf, the opening paragraph goes like this. Good thing that bicycle kick missed. Had it not, had U.S. defender Marcelo Balboa's blind, backward, somersaulting, ridiculously improbable <laughs> shot late in America's 2-1 to World Cup defeat of Colombia on June 22nd actually found the back of the net instead of sailing wide left by inches, the entire country might have died a soccer death stricken by overexcitement. Every videotape machine might have wheezed its last, replaying for the thousandth time what Pelé called, quote, the most beautiful moment of the World Cup so far, end quote. You missed by inches, Marcelo, and, and obviously I you did. would go on to, to, to score amazing bicycle kick goals for Colorado in MLS, goals yeah. of the year in MLS. But have you imagined what would have happened to your life had that World Cup bicycle kick gone in? No, I really, to be honest with you, I think it would have been shown all over the world and, and great. But at that point, I don't think it would have gotten me a contract to play soccer anywhere different. Um, it would have made me sure more popular for a while. But my, our goal was to play well enough, one, to show the American people that soccer and we were here to stay and this is an important sport. And two, 
we played every day. We practiced every day. So when that World Cup was over, we could find somewhere to go play because we knew that the league wasn't going to start till 96. So I played my ass off because I wanted someone to see me. I wanted someone to take a chance on an American defender. Now, did that open up a lot of people's eyes to think that an American and a defender just did a bicycle kick and almost scored? It did, but what what really would have happened? And I sat there for a while thinking, okay, great. I would have. I, it wouldn't have got me a bigger contract. It wouldn't have got me more money. It would have got me a little bit more recognition, sure. You know what I mean? But at the end of the day, um, it was one moment in a game that was more important than that one moment. That game put us into the next round, which we surprised a lot of people beating the number one team in the world, the team that went to Argentina and beat Argentina in the World Cup qualifier. So, and to be honest with you, I didn't even have time to enjoy it because I got drug tested the next, I got drug tested. I spent five hours because I had a, basically a heat stroke and couldn't go to the bathroom. I didn't go back with the team. I didn't celebrate with the team. I had to take, they had to have a private minivan for me till I was done being drug tested and drove and had to drive back to Mission Viejo. So I didn't even get to enjoy like that moment of enjoying that win, everything. But I don't, I don't, to this day, I don't think that it would have changed anything except for that goal would have gone in and maybe I'd be in the top five goals best ever in, in the World Cup. Now I'm in the top <laughs> five best misses ever, so I'm okay. I'm okay. <laughs> I mean, and obviously soccer was in a different place in the United yeah. States back in 94. And even, you know, doing something of that magnitude, beating Columbia in a packed Rose Bowl, is that, if you had to pick one moment in your career is that is that the one that stands out the most or where does it rank beating columbia yeah it, it's it's probably in the top god you know i would say it's in the top three to five and only because they're god i was blessed man i was blessed to be able to stay and and to say that i've played in three world cups but there were other moments to me that were in my in my career that were significant of having to fight back from a torn ACL eight, nine months before the World Cup and having to fight back through depression that I'm not going to make it back to seeing my dream get taken away from me and not taken away from anybody else, but me from my injury, it being taken away from me. So there were there was a lot of things throughout the career. My first goal, you know, my 100th cap to score against Nigeria. There were just so many cool um God, moments that it's tough just to say those were, that was it. For me, that was probably the most important game we've ever played because we've lost to Columbia so many times leading up to that. And I don't know if you remember the Marlboro Cup games and all those tournaments we used to play in Miami. We always lost. I remember we played them and we went to PKs and I think it was Casey Keller hits a, a penalty kick. So we went in a penalty kick. He hit it so hard it bounced almost to midfield and we've, we just never beat him. You know, it was one of those things. So when you talk about a World Cup and you talk about important games when I played in my era, I think that was probably one of the most significant games. That and the Mexico 0-0 draw in Azteca 97 because we've never drawn at that point. We've never beat them. And that was a collective group effort. Just listen, go back to the Columbia game. And in the first five minutes, there could have been a completely different outcome if Sorber and Fernando and me don't slide, I miss the ball. It hits off Sorber. It hits off Fernando, and they clear it off the line. If that goes in, you know what? I think maybe the mentality of our oh, crap, 
again, we're going to lose to them, you know, because they scored first. That didn't go in, and all of a sudden, we kind of grew a little bit. We started growing in confidence that we can play, and, and when things go your way, they they go your way. But that was probably the one of the one of the key moments as a team that we played. I want to ask about. You mentioned Colorado. You're not from there originally. You went to play there, ended up staying there. What's the soccer community like there? Because we've seen talent coming from Colorado. We've seen it on the women's side, uh, you know, yep. Lindsay Horan, oh, yeah. Mal Pugh. Uh, we've seen it a little bit on the men's side. What? It, it's kind of a hotbed. How would you describe it? We don't have the luxury. I'm a California boy. So in California, I played 12 months out of 12 months, and maybe we would take a little bit of time off. So say 11 out of 12 months. The difficulties we have here is when it gets cold, it gets cold. So we probably play nine months out of the year, eight months out of the year. So we're always a little bit behind. But the community, since I've been here, watching the professional team from the Foxes to the Colorado Rapids, the way the youth has grown here, um, it's just competitive. You know what I mean? It's pretty competitive. It's grown immensely of, of how much people have have learned and how people are engaged in soccer. So, listen, are, are we L.A.? Are we New York? Are we, you know, Toronto or Seattle? We're not there yet, but every year it keeps growing, this community. And, it, and it's, you know what, it, it's, it's fun to have been a part of it since 96 all the way to now, 25 years later, you can see this, the development. You, all of a sudden, you see a Cole Bassett being developed. You see a Shane O'Neill. You see a Dylan Cerna. You know what I mean? You start seeing these players being developed. So, and that's our goal. Listen, as a, as a, as a coach now, our, listen, I've, had, I've been blessed enough that I've had Cole on my team for a year. I've had Sebby Anderson before they pulled him up to the first team. I had uh, Matt Hundley, who's just signed last year as a homegrown. So to see those kids go through the system and keep developing – and be able to, because let's be honest, we we had a fight. We had to go from high school to college and then hopefully get seen by a national team or an Olympic team. If not, we were playing an amateur league. So the opportunity these kids have now to be seen, to develop, to bypass college and sign a home. Imagine if we could have signed a homegrown co- contract from high school. Tab, Harksy, Winalda, Lexi and bypass college and gone straight into the professional ranks. So uh, we can see how much soccer's grown. And here in Colorado, every year it's getting better. So how did it come about that you're coaching the 14s and then assistant coaching the 19s with the Rapids? When I was running a club right up the road here and Paul Bravo saw my kids play one day and they were starting to make some changes in the academy. They wanted to bring in ex-players and, uh, and I do the TV so the U14s is a state team. It's a team that plays local games and then plays two tournaments outside. Um, they thought that was a good age for me. I could still do the TV and work and be a part of the, the office, the front office, and do my TV stuff and, and be able to coach. And that would put a, a full-time package for me together with, to be full-time with the Rapids. So it came about that way. Um, after about a year they started assisting coaching each other. What what best matches up with practice schedules? So we, the 15s, the 17s, and the 19s train at 4.30. We train, well, 4.30 to 6. We go 6.15 to later. So uh, they put me as an assistant coach with the 19s because they wanted that professional experience where you've played. You can translate that a little bit more, explain to the players because their next step 
if they're in our club, they're at any DA club that is at the 19s, it's because they have an ambition to go pro. So they decided to put me with the 19s because of that experience. I could kind of teach them and show them and explain to them little by little what it's going to take to be a professional or not go home, play Xbox, and then go train in the afternoon. You know what I mean? Kind of just to give them a little bit of an insight of what it was. And, uh, and I love it. I love it. It's been, it's been a great experience for me. Would you ever want to coach an MLS senior team? <laughs> How's this? Um, I would love to be an assistant coach. I think being a head coach, I've gone from the 14s to the 19s. I've gone with Tab with the under 20s. Um, I don't think I'm ready. I, I don't think I'd be ready to take on a full professional team. That's just being honest. I think if I wanted to, I'd say, sure, I'll take it and, and dive myself in. But when I do something, I want to do it right. So I think I've taken the proper steps from being a youth coach to running a youth club team to running the 14s to right as a head coach of the 19s a year ago until they hired Marcelo Sarvis because we had a little bit of transition. So I've seen every part of it and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. So um, I think the, the logical step would be would me be an assistant coach in MLS and see how that how that kind of fits what I like. And if I do great and that leads to a head coach job, if not, listen, I love TV. I love talking. I love going to practices and talking to the players and the coaches. I don't like I don't like the, the, the actual game day of what a coach does. I like what he does leading up to it. And only because the way he has to prepare the players and talk to them, the way the inter, the way he interacts, the way he sets up a practice. Because you see so much more of the wheels spinning in practice than you do in a game. Because you watch so much video. But in a game, he's setting up. He's explaining how he thinks the other team's going to play. How we should function. Uh, the functionality of our back four should move. It's just, it's just it gets my mind going. And it really, it, that's, where, that's where my passion kind of lies. In, in, that, in that area of watching how a coach manages his players. Which nowadays, I think, is more important than actually coaching them. Interesting. Putting on that media hat for a second here, what's your sense of the Colorado Rapids' first team? Off to a good start under new coach Robin Fraser, two wins in the first two games of the league uh, before everything shut down. When Robin came in last year, things started moving in a good direction. What's happening there? You know what? I think it's, it's, it's simple and it's not simple. I think Robin has let the horses loose. And what I mean by that is we've got so much talent with Jonathan Lewis and the pace on the outside and Shinishiki. And you have Sam Nicholson that can run at players and get now when you organize them a little bit more. And I thought Connor Casey, don't, don't get me wrong. I think I thought Connor Casey did a great job when he took over because he took us out of that slump and started rolling the ball. I think Robin has just brought a little bit more structure, more of the tactical side of how we want to move, how we want to suck teams over and get it to the outside, to the weak side. So I think he's done a good job of explaining it, but he's also been very very prudent on let's attack. We're going to go forward when we get the ball, we're going to keep possession, but we're going to go fast. And we haven't used the altitude. We haven't used the pace we have. And Robin's allowing these players to show a little bit of their personality. And I think when you allow players to show that personality, they start doing things that they're used to, they used to do before and they were comfortable about it. Uh, Plus, let's be honest, bringing in Lalas was, was something that was needed a Bubakar. Because last year he turned, we needed some pace. We had two smart center backs, but you got to have a smart guy and a quick guy. And Lexi was always the quick guy. I was a smart guy, you know, in our in our tandem. Two slowest guys you'll ever meet in your life. But <laughs> but I think it was just complementing pieces, allowing. I think the fact that you look at a guy like Sammy Vines, 
who was a homegrown. We brought in the experience, left-footed. He's quick. He's developing, and he's he goes forward quite a bit, and he puts people on, on their back, on the on their heels a little bit. So, I think it's just more now of tactically. Robin has put into place how we want to do things, how we're going to defend, how we're going to attack. Everybody knows their roles. When you go out of practice, Robin's very good at explaining what he wants, not making you guess as a player. Sometimes he explains it to you. So I think that's been the turnaround. And also, listen, bringing in some of the players, I think finally when you start looking at – we've always needed a 10. Always needed a 10. I've been saying this for 15 years since Valderrama left. And finally they got this Nomaly who's that 10 kind of that false nine that can kind of find the ball. So I think finally the, the, the pieces have come together – and they all fit under what Robin wants to do. And that's why I think it's working. Listen, it could go wrong. And like MLS, we all know these teams are going to go through ups and downs and ups. It's a roller coaster. We know this. So it, it's how you, how does Robin keep this team collectively together through the rough times? That's, that's where we're, that's, that's the, the only hiccup I can see with this team. Do you like the idea that MLS has of having this tournament in Orlando for a month? You know, I think we we got to do something to get it rolling again. So do I like what the Bundesliga's doing? They're playing in empty stadiums, but they're playing in certain venues. Yeah, I like it. They're piping in the, the sound now, which makes it much better than before. That, you know you know how it is. When you play – when I played at Lyon, Thursdays was always scrimmage. And scrimmage in the stadium with nobody around. And you know it's a practice game, even though it was a serious game. So when you start adding the atmosphere – listen, I think you have to do what you have to do to get the season kicked off. Um, to make up some of the games that in the past that, that you couldn't make up from March and April and May. But at the end of the day, um, fans want to see their teams play in their home in their home market. So, uh, you know, hopefully we get to that point where we can get some home games in our own markets. But I think you have to start the league and you have to get the players playing in a safe environment, be it Orlando, be it wherever that may be. But uh, as long as it's done safely... I think we're all ecstatic that, that soccer is – but listen, the ratings from Bundesliga has gone crazy. And just what's going to happen when La Liga starts, what's going to happen when the EPL starts in June. So, um, yeah, I, I'm okay with it. I don't think it's the best scenario because I think the players being isolated from their families for two months is tough. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, welcome to professional soccer, man. That's, that's our job sometimes. This is the hiccup we have. True, true. I don't think you, I don't think you look like you're a fan of it, though. Uh, you're you know, looking at me. I'm like – no, Are you a man. fan? Like I, I am just excited that soccer's back in the Bundesliga, yeah. and like I've enjoyed watching games again. It's going to be crazy when the Premier League starts, and it's like yeah. quadruple headers on Saturday and yeah. Sunday every week. But I love the sport, you know, and I'm excited to see it happen again. It's a little piece of humanity coming back, so I'm okay with that. I have a random question for you when it comes to broadcasting, because yeah, obviously you've you've broadcast extensively in the English language. You've done it in the Spanish language. Do you call a game differently in Spanish than you do in English, style-wise? Yes and no. Um, I think it's different when you do a national broadcast because you're not tied into any team. You, you, can, you can do the game. What you see is what you get, and you can comment on that. When you're doing regional TV, you have to soften it a little bit. You don't have to be a homer, but you have to soften it a little bit. So you do tend to... Do it a little different, not a lot. You just have to use different words, different phrases. And uh, I mean, it's normal. It, it, it's because you're doing it for your home team. So it's different than doing it. You, when I'm doing USA Mexico, 
I can be as honest because I know the other analyst is Mexican and he's going to rip the U.S. So my job, listen, my job on Univision is to protect the United States and to make sure that they're getting a fair shot. You know what? When it's with the Rapids and Richard, my job is to make sure that we do the game fairly. And if the Rapids don't play well, it's okay to say they didn't play well. If they do play well, I can say they play well. You just have to choose specific words. A little different. That's all. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> that's the most um, political way. I don't. I don't know how to say it any other way. So <laughs> no, it makes sense. I, like. Another question I have is just about the current U.S. men's national team under Greg Berhalter. What's what's your take on the state of the team? You know, I'm, I'm still in the air. I've done enough games. I've been enough practices. Uh, I like Greg Berhalter. This, you know what I mean, as as a player, as as a person, as a coach. Um, sometimes I don't agree with what he's doing on the field, like against Mexico when they lost three nothing to Mexico, and they still forced the ball out of the back, and they still because they wanted to play, they wanted to learn. I get that. But uh, it's Mexico. Uh, losing twice to Mexico in a matter, I think it was two months, three months, if I'm correct, somewhere in there, right? Yeah. Um, is not what we want. So um, I, I think, God, it's a tough one because I thought Tab was going to get the job, to be honest with you. I thought right. that whole year Tab was, was going to go from Bruce Arena to Tab, that, you know what I mean? But uh, listen, I, I think uh, the verdict's still out. Um, we're going to qualify, and I'll be. I think we're going to qualify. I think we have such talented, young, athletic kids that want to represent their country, that love to wear that United States jersey behind me, and uh, and they're dying to get in a World Cup, just like we were in '90. We were dying. We would do anything to get to that World Cup, and I feel that same that same grit, that same passion, that same mentality from these kids. They're a little younger, no doubt about it. But uh, I think they'll get the job done. But under Greg, uh, you know what? I'm still not, and with all due respect, I'm still not convinced the way that we're playing is the best that we can play with this team. Interesting. I, I'm curious to see what the schedule ends up being because it sounds like the hexagonal, the CONCACAF president saying it may have to be changed. So we'll see if national team games, if FIFA windows even happen this year. But Lots to look forward to there. Yeah, but that that could be another that could be another tournament. Let's be honest. That could be the right. the, the the hexagonal the, the qualifiers could be another. We're going to go we're going to go somewhere for a month. You're going to play the qualifiers. There's three mm-hmm. teams are going through. You know what I mean? It could be the exact same a mini a mini gold cup. It could be at that time. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, I guess similar to the way women's World Cup qualifying yeah. goes in Concacaf, where it's a tournament. But I think also there's there's less margin for error in a situation like that. So yeah, no, no, if you no. want to scare U.S. fans, bring up less margin for error. <laughs> hey, having to go to Honduras or Salvador, Jamaica, Mexico, those, those aren't easy venues, man. Those are not, those are not easy with the heat and the, the field. So a neutral site wouldn't be a, a bad idea. So I got a true or false question for you here. You posted a, a picture on your Instagram not, not long ago from 1993 and this 1993 picture is one of the more impressive mullets I have ever seen. True or false, did you have the best mullet in U.S. soccer history in 1993? You know, I, I would say that um, I don't even know how to answer that one. Yeah, it's true. It was, <laughs> you know, you know why? I, it was growing long. I tore my ACL, okay? And I told myself I'm not going to cut it until I'm back. So by the time I was back, the hair was right to about here. 
So I kept on playing with it. I put a, I put a uh, shoelace around my head. I kept on tucking it in. And finally, when Bora announced the World Cup team and told me I was on the World Cup team, he said to me, he goes, listen, okay. He goes, you're going to be playing in a game. You're going to play with your hair. You're going to miss a guy running by you. And if that happens, I'm going to pull you off the field. So you have two choices. Go cut your hair, okay, or I'll cut it for you. So we got the mullet. We cut really short, left it long in the back, and I played in the uh, in the. I was in that. I saw that ugly that website, the ugly hairdos or the ugliest hairdos of ninety or something. And I was like in the top ten. So I was pretty proud of that. I was pretty proud of that. But yeah, I was gonna let it grow completely. But Boris like, nope. So I'm like, all right, I'll keep the back. You know, you know, they shorten the front part in the back mullet. It's okay. It was in. It was in back then. It was in. I got confused for hockey players. I'm going to give you a slight edge for best mullet in U.S. soccer history, just over Tony Miola in 1990, (laughs) uh, which was pretty impressive. As someone who follows your Instagram, you're very positive thinking on there. You're also very honest. And I I wanted to ask you about a post you had in 2018 that you made public. And the actual thing you posted said, take life day by day and be grateful for the little things. Don't get caught up in what you can't control. Focus on the positive. And then below that, you wrote, I have lost this perspective over the last few years, and it has cost me dearly in my personal life. Finding my way back, hope, grateful heart, positive thinking. Was there a reason you decided to make that public and and what was going on at the time? You know... There was a lot of things that were going on, um, and I'll start with when I retired. And I've been told anybody this story, so you, you're the first one. Um, I kind of lost my way. I was Marcelo Balboa, the soccer player, and I didn't know who Marcelo Balboa, the person, was away from soccer. So I surrounded myself, and with all due respect to people, I, I surrounded myself with people who kept on telling me how great I was. Uh, I got into a lot of drinking. I got into a lot of other things that cost me my marriage, that cost me a bunch of things. So on that part, I I just lost myself. And I thought I had myself back and I didn't. So when I found out Fernando had cancer and I started hanging out with other people who are a little bit more spiritual and were more of trying to help me find myself as Marcelo Balboa, the person, not the soccer player. That's who I've always been my whole life since I was... 17, 16, 15, 14, I was the guy who played soccer. He had a brother. They were the best players here. They were the best players there. So I didn't know how to transition from being that to who I wanted to be. So there came a point where when Fernando told me he had, uh, he had cancer, I, I, I had another relationship that, uh, that I lost to because of the fact that I couldn't find out who I was. So I finally figured out who I was. I started going to counseling. I started talking with people who really, I figured out what I had in life and how blessed I was to have what I had because soccer has given me everything, man. Everything from a family to a house, to the experiences, to friends. And I lost a lot of friends because of the drinking, the partying when I retired that uh, Fernando smacked me around uh, and, and helped me put myself back together like he did in 94 with the with the ACL. He was that mentor that kind of helped me find my way back to who I was, that it was okay to be Marcelo, the non-athlete, just the dad, the husband. And I am so proud now 
to say that I, I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm, I'm, I just enjoy it. You know what I mean? That's why you see me out on hikes every day. You see me on bikes is because it took a long time to figure out who I wanted to be. And when I did on that day, it kind of clicked. It kind of clicked. You know what I mean? And when they say, and they say, when you believe you see, and I think if you look later on, when Fernando passed away, I went for a hike and, uh, I froze at a point in a hike where I saw a shadow with, with like a blue jacket or something. And it really, it, it gave me the chills to the point where I couldn't move on this hike. I literally froze and then I moved again. And, uh, I went home and I was like, I didn't, I thought about it for a few days and just let it kind of ponder and go. And one day I opened up and I felt it was Fernando anyway, but I wasn't sure. So then I opened up my phone in the morning and the first picture, I swear, Grant, the first picture that popped up was a picture of Fernando in a light blue sweatshirt. So I ended up calling Martha real quick and talked to Martha and she, we both felt it was the same way. So it was just a lot of, a lot of uh, struggles through that. No one knows. No one knows. I, I keep pretty much to myself, but that, that's where that kind of came from. I finally found who I was and what I wanted to be. Thanks for sharing. Um, yeah, man. And Fernando being obviously Fernando Clavijo, who was on your 94 World Cup team, coach, one of the, the great guys uh, we've ever had in, in U.S. soccer, who we lost to cancer. And what about Fernando made, made him special? Just happy, go, always happy. Always trying to find something positive. Always trying to uh, fight for what he believed in. And I think that was a thing that, uh, that, uh, that always inspired me a little bit. He, he, if he believed in something, he was passionate about it. Plus, I think, you know what? Bohr was a smart guy. And I don't think Bohr gets a lot of credit. When I was starting to play... I was getting to that point where I was playing a lot of minutes and, and you know, how it is as a young kid, you get a little bit arrogant, you get a little bit cocky. You think, uh, nothing's going to stop me. I got this. And at that point, Fernando Bora put Fernando as my roommate. Cause I think he saw what potentially I had and what potentially I could do stupid things as a 20 something year old. So Fernando, uh, became the mentor. Fernando became, uh, the the godfather for me he was in the room and i said let's go do something he's like go lay down i'm like okay he's like well let's go to dinner we already ate go sit down so you know what i mean he he was just that guy and his family you know what i mean they they adopted me almost as their as their second son their third son at the time i babysat their kids and it was it was you know i've got i've been lucky enough to have an awesome father and a mother but fernando was that guy that was with me through the through the thick and the thin through the acl cuz my mom and dad lived in california and as i played soccer fernando was the other father so um just everything about him you know what a great father he was what a great husband he was what a teammate always always fighting for your teammates and you can see even when in the in the 94 world cup when tab gets hit by leonardo with the elbow Look at that video and see who's the first one in there getting ready to nail somebody. And that was Fernando going after grabbing players. So, you know, that, that passion was very infectious uh, on a lot of us. And I'm wondering, now that you come out the other side, for, for athletes who have retired, what sort of advice would you give to them? Oh, man. Um, have, that, have that plan always. You're not going to be an athlete the rest of your life. 
have that plan of what you want to do after. Everybody says, oh, I want to coach. I want to, you know what I mean? There, there's other stuff out there that you have a passion for. It's not always soccer. It's not soccer for everybody. But I think you can't, you can't start thinking about the after a year before you're out. You know, it's one of those things you got to gradually start setting up your life and, and just kind of putting yourself in that position. And I'm not saying at 21 you have to do this. But when you start hitting that 29, 30, you know you've got about four, five, six years. Start putting that plan together because I, from what I've seen and people I've talked to, uh, players that have gotten themselves in a little bit of trouble or have lost their ways because they thought they had a plan right when they retired, they were going to coach. Somebody was going to offer them a coaching job, and it wasn't there. Um, I know a lot of players that have gone back to, and went to school and finished their school. You know what I mean? I'm 52, and I've got two classes left to graduate. And it is, it is the hardest thing when you've had so many concussions to sit in front of a computer and do six hours of schoolwork. And, uh, and I haven't been able to do it because I've gotten so many headaches just watching the computer and trying to get the work done. So for me now, the advice I have is have something set up. Think of what you really have a passion for besides soccer and start finding a way. If you need to get a degree, if you need to get online schooling with SNHU that MLS has now that you can get your schooling done, is have that, have that plan set in place five to eight years leading into that retirement, not two years out. Because that's where you're going to struggle. And, and to figure out, uh, for me, like anything else, that you were a soccer player, but now you're a father, you're a husband, you're a boyfriend, whatever it is, an uncle, an e- whatever, whatever it comes to, that, that it's a good thing, man. It's a good, and I'll be honest, when, when I know people don't like to get religious, but it took me a while. But when I believed in going back to church and believing in God and trusted in God, it, uh, it opened up a lot of doors here that I closed off before thinking I didn't need those. How many concussions did you have? You got to remember, when we played, there was no concussion protocol. There was no Taylor Twelman rule, we'll call it. Right. Um, when we played, if you remember the goal I scored in 2000, the, war, the, goal, the, the goal of the year for MLS, I got knocked out before that, during that game. So I didn't remember the goal. I don't remember that game. The doctor had to tell me. So there's probably been in Mexico, I've gotten knocked out. I would say somewhere between... Uh, 12, 12 and 18 throughout my career, blocking balls and heading, heading into people. And listen, I got knocked out. Didn't remember the game. I played the following week. There was no holding back. It was, can you, can you see the ball? Do you see double vision? No. Okay. I'm playing. So yeah. yeah. And you still have, you still have effects. I still have effects. That's why it's, it's, it's now it's, it's, I try not to be on the computer uh, for very long. Cause if I'm there for an hour or two, I can, I can start getting headaches. My eyes get a little blurry. So I just kind of do a little bit and I walk away. I do a little bit. I walk away. So yeah, we still have, you still have those, those effects of, you know, I used to take Advil, like they were Tic Tacs every day, for three, four, five of them to keep the headaches away. So it's just, it's, it was just reality, man. When we played, it was reality. You, you had to play. There was no, well, I, I have to see the doctor. No, it's, can you play today? Sure, let's go. So let me get this straight here. You scored one of the greatest goals in MLS history in 2000. <laughs> Bicycle kick goal, goal of the year. Yes, yes. And you weren't even, you didn't have your wits about you when you were doing that amazingly difficult thing to do? Well, this is the story the trainer told me that he asked me three questions. I got all three wrong. He said, okay, I'm gonna have to pull you off the field. I told him if he takes me off the field, I'll freaking kill him. So we walked down the sideline. He says, he's gonna let me go back into the game. 
um, and you'll keep an eye on me. That's that's it. After that, I played the rest of the game. I scored a bicycle kick. I remember I remember walking into my room, and Ross Ross Pauly says, "Hey, your goal is uh, on Sports Center goal or uh, top ten. and I'm like, "What goal?" And then he turns around, and it was on it was on ESPN. So you know, it, it listen, it was reality back then. It was you know how many guys Ross Pauly had to retire from concussion right. syndrome. Lance Key had to retire. So uh, there was no chance I was going to retire. That that was not going to hold me back from playing soccer. Wow. So wow. will I pay for it later? I'm paying for it now. Sure. But it's okay. Wow. So really appreciate you taking this much time. Let's wrap no, no up problem, with what I call the rapid fire quiz. And rapid, <laughs> rapid has double meaning here this time. So yes. Yes, it does. Let's start with most memorable goal you ever scored at club level and why? God, I think that's an easy one. I think it's only because of the uh, the bicycle kick. It's something as a kid that I practiced. I broke lamps. I broke so many things trying to do this. I've hurt my back. And to be able to finally connect on something that you saw your, your, your childhood hero do in Pele and to be able to simulate what he did and put that ball in the back of the net – it was, uh, you know, when you think about goals, that was the dream come true for me to be able to score a bicycle kick. And I've been fortunate. I've gotten a few, but not like this, not like this one with the timing of it, the ball back in Columbus. So I would say the, the bicycle kick. Most memorable goal you ever scored for the national team and why? Oof, that's, uh, you know, there, there's, there's a few that come to mind, but I'm going to go with my 100th cap at Foxborough against Nigeria, a cross comes in, and uh, to be able to say that first I was the first American ever to reach 100 caps on the male side or on the women's side, there was no one that reached 100 caps was absolutely special to me, but to be able to top it off because my mom, my dad, at the time my wife was there, um, to be able to score to make it a double kind of moment was, was, was kind of a special day for me. Um, and I don't think my mom's ever been in a stadium with an Ash team where I've actually scored a goal. So that was that was double meaning there. So mom got to actually see me score in a, in a, in a game. Nice. Best player you ever played against and why? Oh, man, that would be, I think, in a media game, Grant Wall. I don't know if you remember him. <laughs> so. Good answer. You know, I, that's a... You know, and I don't know if a lot of your viewers, but we can go back to Batistuta. You can go back to Romario, Bebeto, Canizia. You know, those, those were tough players. So I would have to say when, when we played against Batistuta, he was big, strong, physical, fast. Um, I thought I was a good matchup because I was pretty big and strong, but uh, no, not, not one bit. He, he was – I've never played against a guy so physically – able to do so many different things at such high speeds compared to, you know what you're getting with Romaro and Bebeto, but this Batistuta threw me for, for a big loop. He was probably the toughest guy I had to mark. Best teammate you ever had and why? Uh, that's easy. That's Fernando Clavijo. And I think we went through it. Uh, father figure kept me in check, uh, helped me keep my life together at certain times. Because you always have doubts as a player. You have doubts. Like when I was coming back from my ACL before the 94 World Cup, I had doubts that I could come back. And I remember laying in bed, just kind of feeling sorry for yourself, like most people do. It's more of a mental than physical because you know your leg can come back. It's the mental side of it. And I remember him saying to me, uh, get your ass out of bed. We're going to practice. I'm not going to the World Cup without you. So get your ass out of bed 
and we're going to go work out. And I was like, all right, let's go, man. So, and listen, for a guy that was older than all of us, he would train in the morning. I'm riding my bike around the grass because I saw what uh, the English player was. Oh, Paul Gascoigne, when he tore his ACL, they talked about him riding the bike around the, the, around the uh, practice field because the grass made it harder to pedal. So I would do that. Afternoon, I went and got Fernando bought a bike. We went mountain biking in the afternoon to get me back. So that's uh, – and listen, I've had some great teammates. And don't get me wrong – Lexi, Tab, Winalda, Harksy. I've had some great Tony Miola. God, Paul Calagiri. I've had some great roommates, but there's always one guy that you click with, and it's usually a roommate, and that was mine, was Fernando. Best coach you ever had, and why? Ooh, if I don't say my dad, he would probably kill me. So um, <laughs> I think, you know, I, I, I think my dad would be through the youth side because if it wasn't for him pushing me, kicking me off his team because I thought I was better than I should have been, I don't think I would have got to where I was at, but when I got to to the professional level, uh, Ganser was absolutely amazing. But <clears throat> when Bora took over, there was something about Bora about that international game that we didn't know that he taught us, you know. And I remember some of his speeches was like, "What are you afraid of?" He goes, "The Mexican team puts on their pants one leg at a time, just like you do. They put their shoes on one one leg at a time." He goes, what are you guys so afraid of that you, they're doing that you can't do? And we proceeded to go into the Gold Cup and we beat Mexico 2 nothing because he started putting us in a place. And listen, it wasn't great soccer at the time. It was, it was slow. We would build it up until something. I remember that was the big thing about Bora. But at that time, it went away from long ball over the top and let's all go chase it. So I would say probably Bora. Finally career soccer achievement you are most proud of and why Ooh, wow soccer achievement that i'm proud of um i'm proud of all of them i'll be honest with you but uh i think um here's it when you start playing soccer you you don't think about other other things you just think about playing soccer and soccer and as you get older you start realizing that you you want to leave some sort of legacy you want to leave something so a mark in, in the game of soccer so when, when I was inducted into the U.S. Soccer Hall of Fame, my first Hall of Fame, it meant that people accepted me. And I had a hard time because I remember it was uh, Paul Gardner wrote an article that called me the Rambo of soccer, that I was going to self-destruct, that I was going to implode. And, uh, and it made me doubt that I was a good player, if I was a bad player, if I was just one of those guys that kicked the crap out of everybody and that was my job. Kind of like the, you know, you go in hockey, you got the enforcers, you know, and it made me question myself. So when your own peers and the media voted me in, um, I felt like I was finally accepted. And I know that's weird. It's weird to say. But uh, at that point, I finally felt that the soccer community saw more than just this tall guy that liked to tackle really hard. And was that kind of player. So it, it, kind, of, it kind of validated that I, that I was a decent player for me. This has been an absolute pleasure. Marcelo Balboa, thanks so much for joining the show. Anytime, brother. Anytime. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Marcelo Balboa as well as producer Chris Whittingham. I also want to thank my friends Taylor Rockwell and Daryl Grove of the Total Soccer Show for everything they've done to help get this show off the ground. 
and Nathan McVitie and Zach Goldman for their work with show branding and identity. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time. Thank you.